Christmas is just around the corner and it's basically my favorite time of year. I've made a Christmas EP, which I think you'll love. Link is in the show notes. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and no Welcome to Shotgun Story, the podcast that has conversations with indie creators about music, meaning, and the point of it all, so that you may be inspired by the journeys of other artists who are doing it for themselves, and maybe gain a little more understanding as to why it matters quite so much that you keep creating. Gareth Wilson, affectionately known as G. Willie in the South African music scene, best known as the Poppy Copy Booker, Southern Gypsy Queen frontman and owner of different venues and restaurants like Good Luck Bar and Romeo's. Welcome to Shotgun Story. I couldn't think of anyone I'd rather do a podcast with. You are wonderfully flattering. You know, I, I listen to so many podcasts and I enjoy them so much, but all the music industry ones, are, it gets very like academic sometimes or very super industry. And then I tend to get a bit bored where I know with you, it's definitely going to drift off into like personal and more emotional type of things. Just knowing the people we both are, shall I say, yeah. <laughs> 100%. This is not going to be academic. I want to talk about your beginnings of your relationship with music. Why? I remember my first ever time I ever remember listening to music. It is a song called Twitter and the Monkey Man. Tom Petty started the supergroup, uh, Roy Orbison, Tom Petty. Travelling Wilburys. Travelling Wilburys. How did I forget that? <laughs> Tweeter and the Monkey Man we were driving to Joburg and my dad had one of those old BMs. You remember the back seats used to be bouncy like that? <laughs> and I remember listening to Tweeter and the Monkey Man and I just remember that song standing out so much. Ironically, years later I listened to it and it's like, you know, there's like a car boot full of cocaine and hash and I was it's like five years old. Why was this the song I remember? <laughs> anyway, and that is my first experience with music. I, I fell in love with music immediately. I'm a, I always consider myself a bigger fan of music than I ever was a performer. Mm. I love listening to music. And then my dad was really into music. Mm. So he was like a massive Rolling Stones fan, Bob Dylan, Springsteen, The Who, Zeppelin, Pink Floyd. Growing up, I got to listen to some of the greatest music ever recorded on record <laughs> it was good and then i started looking out for my own stuff you know i think my first tape was vanilla ice Very i can still cool. rap the entire ice ice baby <laughs> still love it still lose my shit when i walk into a bar and they play it i still remember driving to east london from Maltino once and buying that tape my dad buying it for me in queenstown on the way and he was like i think you're ready for your first tape you can choose whatever you want so i was like okay i went for vanilla ice don't even know if we got through the whole of Ice Ice Baby and he threw it out the window. No. <laughs> and he said, listen, yeah, I'll buy you that tape again, but I know if it's in this car, you're going to force me to listen to it. So it's out now. <laughs> Your dad sounds wonderful. Yeah. That's where I sort of remember getting into music. And then my dad was a minister. So I had a really beautiful relationship with my dad is that he was a big believer, obviously, left mm. like banking and everything to go into the ministry. But it was never really my thing, and he kind of understood that to a way. Mm. Once he sat me down, he was like, you're not like the other ones, or the other <laughs> kids. 
It's not really your thing. And then he told me, don't ever fake it. If you don't feel it the way I feel it, don't pretend to feel it, you know, which was amazing. And I still remember saying to him, that's amazing. Thanks for telling me that. But can I still play in the church band? Because <laughs> in Maltino, it is the only regular gig you had. Um, you had monitors, you had a proper sound engineer, and you had a gig every week. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, it's like unheard of. And that's where we all started. Me, Paul, Tam, Tace, our old guitarist is in there. My cousins all went through there. My brothers, my sisters. It is like it is a really great training ground for musicians. I still think the church is the best. Like, it sounds super shallow. But every young musician should try and play in a church man somewhere just because it teaches you so much dynamic, you know. Totally. And we all learned how to sing. We learned how to harmonize. We learned how to not play loudly, which I think was a massive thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then from there, I started a punk band called Bombay Duck. Mm-hmm. We came and recorded. Our guitarist's mom was having an affair with like one of the biggest like producers <laughs> in Joburg. <laughs> and she organized for us to record in downtown studios with this top producer. The last band that recorded in there was U2 while they'd been here. Wow. We sucked so hard. <laughs> <laughs> We'd n- you've never heard something so terrible. Oh, yes, I, I must have that demo somewhere. I'll have to send it to you oh, one I day. Oh, I want to hear it. We were like 15, 16 and, you know, and then after school, I went surfing for a bit. I was waiting for my brother to finish school. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Mm. I went surfing. I was in and out of Maltino, but like doing a lot of surfing down the coast of South Africa and all that, working in little places and doing things or whatever. Um, sold slip slops in a surf shop and like <laughs> nice. never really done anything other than music, you know. And then Dacha Dirk Ace, somebody sent him this video of us playing. And I think it was like at the after party of a church convention or something. <laughs> and we, we got booked to play this like set. And he just got hold of us and he was like, yes, I really like you guys' vibe. You've got a lot of work to do, but you've got a vibe. And I'm booking these shows like on the coast in December. Would you like to come play one or two? So we're like, hell yes. Played the first one. It was on the 24th of December in Strasby. Us and Gert Fugnell. It was so, nice. so depressing. So, yeah, Gert's amazing, but it is... There was like four people there that weren't with their family. So it was like four very drunk, very sad people. Us, also a bit sad because it was our first Christmas ever not with our families. And Gert, who seemed to thrive <laughs> in this, he loved it. This was what he was made for, you know. But the next one was Muscle Bay New Year's. And it is the first big show freshly grounded. And like we played alongside Anton Gusen, Sons of Trout. <laughs> And then Dirk got us onto all our first things. Met Pit Boerte via Dirk at Rock Art. His daughter Jessie came to the show and she was like, oh my shit, my dad will love you. <laughs> Brought her dad to the show. We couldn't believe it. We looked right and Pit Boerte was watching our set. Oh. I remember I still came off uh, stage and shook his hand. I was like, hi, Mr. Boerte. Thank you so much. He's like, Mr. Boerte's my dad. <laughs> <laughs> and then he was like, come to the Wimpy, but meet me at the Wimpy tomorrow morning. So we're like, okay, we'll meet him at the Wimpy tomorrow. We come there and he's like, I think you guys have got something going. I'm going to chat to Vilma Records and get you an album done. Are you keen to come up to Pretoria? So we're like, definitely. And then he said, and next year's Opie Copy 10. So I'll chat to Carl. We'll take some money out of my fee. They must squeeze you in. So they squeezed us in. It is amazing, you know. And And then from there, I think the band thing carried on for what, like 10 years or something. But in between, we just had a string of really shitty managers. Yeah. And I always ended up doing everything myself mm. and realized that someone else is getting paid to do this. I had never owned a laptop until I was 27 or 28. Mm. <laughs> had no idea how they worked. And 
I just phoned Leon Retief from Southern Pulse and I said, Leon, I'm not saying we're not going to leave Southern Pulse. We'll stay with Southern Pulse. I'm just going to work for Southern Pulse. Yeah. So whatever this this manager and booking agent are getting, I'm going to take that commission and you can still get yours. Mm. But I'm looking after Southern Gypsy Queen now. Yeah. And he was very anti it at first, but I was like, it's that or we're leaving. So, you know, so he went with it. And it worked better. Southern Gypsy Queen went, it, in two years, we did more than we'd done in 10 years. Yeah, amazing. It is crazy. But it's just because we cared about our career. Yeah. None of those other guys, we were just another name on their roster. Oh, someone phones, they get a gig. I physically phoned everyone. I knew everyone anyway. We'd been playing the circuit for so long. Yeah. Just needed to push a little bit harder, you know? And then Leon was like, oh, my God, yes, Gareth, would you like to take on other bands? And that's when I started with, like, Tidal Waves and Shadow Club and BCUC. Wonderful. Naming James. And then we started working from the Opikopi offices in Pretoria because the Joburg offices closed down, so I used to drive through there every day. And Misha eventually said to me, listen, Marlies, the girl who was doing my job at Opikopi, she's leaving. Would you like to book the festival? And all the Hilltop Live shows. So I said, I am wanting to play less gigs because <laughs> <laughs> you remember how many gigs we played yeah oh, it is like between 250 or 300 shows a year unbelievable you know it's i have a harder time enough keeping a girlfriend <laughs> that was <laughs> ridiculous so or keeping girlfriends and wives and uh, <laughs> that was exactly what i needed so i stopped booking the bands because i felt it was a conflict of interest mm. I started booking festivals, and and I'm still doing that. That's my main gig. We've got a company now. Ironically, Misha and I started a company. Mm. I left Opikopi, but still booked the festival, but I freelanced. They abused me as a freelancer. I wanted to start my own company when I started Good Luck Bar. I had, I had a really good year, and I phoned Misha, and I said, I'm not paying tax. I don't know how that shit works. I'll give you 50% of this business. <laughs> I'll look after the bookings. I'll bring clients in. Please make sure this business runs. I don't want to go to jail. My yeah. mom phones me to this day. She's like, are you paying tax? Are you doing this? <laughs> if Misha says I am, then I'll <laughs> phone him. Are. Yeah, whatever he's involved in, we're good. So that's the music industry side. Obviously, I started Good Luck Bar as a live music venue along the way. Mm. Had a bit of a, a cuck situation when we left, but still don't regret it, I had three amazing years at Good Luck where we did some incredible stuff on that stage, you know. Oh, it was a beautiful venue. That is, we used to do stuff like that, which I loved, that Baumschalter was playing a show and we'd hire the Joburg Youth Orchestra and they would come out and a hundred kids would come out of nowhere and just stand on the table, stand on the bar, stand in the dance hall with their instruments just unmiked and playing along with Baumschalter. That venue taught me to do a lot of stuff like that, you know? Yeah. And now I've opened a bar called Romeo's. Not as music orientated. It's, it's more DJs. It's like a sit-down, mm -hmm. fancy restaurant. You can eat really nice food. It's a supper club, so you, it, for people our age. Uh -huh. They don't want to bounce from bar to bar because there's a, literally a place in um, Newtown called Third Place. Great place, by the way. But yeah. that's exactly what it is. You go to one place, you go to a second place, and you end up at the third place. Mm -hmm. So we were like... This is a nice vibe. Come to one place yeah. and sit and eat something really good. And this restaurant turns into a full-blown hip-hop nightclub so a few fun. hours later. Yeah. So that's my story. That's a did, great did story. I waffle on a bit? No, I like that story oh, okay. a lot. There were <laughs> some things I wanted to say about your story. Number one, I totally started out in a church group. Uh -huh. That's what I did as well. So I agree with you. Everyone should. 
And the other thing I wanted to say was your story, what Pete Puerta gave me goosebumps. Oh, thank you. I've got so many Pete Puerta stories. He was the game changer in Southern Gypsy Queen's career and in my life. And I always say between Misha and Pete Puerta, they created the person I am. Pete taught me how to care for what's real and what's right in music. And Misha actually pulled me aside once and he said, Gareth, you guys really have something going for you. We all love Pitt, but do you want to make a career out of this? Because you have to get a little bit more business-like in certain ways, you know. And it was the best advice ever. And I've always, I always drew from both. Sort of found my little path in between. But yeah, Pitt, I stayed on his plot for weeks and weeks on end. Yeah. Wonderful. What a man. What a musician. So now, if you were to look at your career as a timeline, could you give me five highlights? The top five, both as an industry player and as a musician. All right. As a musician, I think something you were involved in was the 10 years of Southern Gypsy Queen, the big show we did at Opikopi. Um, at the end of the set, I just kind of sat back and I was like, oh my God, did you see the people that were on the stage with us? And it was kind of like, we couldn't have been terrible and we must have done something right because we had the cream of the crop. You know, we had you, we had Tidal Waves, we had Fuzzy Gish, we had Tomorrow Day, we had Shadow Cloud, Black Hat Bones. And the truth of it was there were 10,000 people in that audience. Yeah, it is definitely our biggest. Well, we, we did these shows. We used to play for SA Rugby. That was the low light of my career. We played for 80,000 people for six weekends in a row who hated us. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, that was, as a player, I'd say that was definitely a highlight. Another big highlight for me is definitely what we did with with Good Luck Bar. Mm. Um, Nickel and I wanted to open a bar that every weekend sort of did things the way we did at Opikopi. Mm. We didn't want to be like, you've got this bar, they do the rock and the metal, and these guys do the hip-hop, and this is your jazz bar. We wanted to create a place that felt like Opikopi Top Bar. Yeah, It had to be great music. It had to have a, like a message we approved of. We wouldn't just book anyone. Mm. But we would also purposefully not keep the same genre on a lineup. You know, have a night completely mixed up. I'm proud of what Nicola and I did there. And then Opikopi itself is, I still remember the first Opikopi I booked. I had no idea what I was doing, actually. Like most jobs I've mm. taken on, I'm always going to just lie through my teeth and then <laughs> figure it out as I go. And sitting with Carl, and Carl was amazing to work with as a booker. He knew so much about music, but he also knew where we had to go. Yeah. And something that a lot of people just saw people before is that it's not just a white rock festival. Mm. That it never actually was. Yeah. You know, if you look at all the names on the wall at the top bar, you've got like the Soul Brothers, Vusi Sela, Ray Piri. Jeez, there are so many names. Madala Kunene written on this wall. Those names were all written there in 94 and 95 so it's never been an all-white rock and roll festival but carl was like this festival's still too white mm. and i thought i was coming in even i thought i was coming in to book a rock festival yeah and he was like gareth we need to book more acts make this more inclusive i'm tired of just seeing mixed races on the stages but you look out over the audience and they're still all white. Yeah. And he was like, I want to see mixed. When I look out over the crowd, I want to see black and white. And it was quite daunting. I did, I did get into a lot of genres of music I knew nothing about. And really, he was like, go, deep side, figure it out. It's so exciting. Yeah. 
when Teresa took over, yeah, it was the same spirit. Carl also taught Teresa what he knows. So, you know, a lot of people have a lot of things to say about Carl, but I had a, an amazing experience working with him mm. uh, because I just booked the bands. I liked the way he wanted me to book the bands. And that is a career highlight, being part of not one or Picobi, but seven or eight. Or, I mean, I don't actually even know how many I've booked, but to watch it transform and that it was planned, you know? I mean, Opikopi is basically, as a young musician starting out, Opikopi is like the goal. For me too, yeah. Yeah. And for me, it is always like, if you don't play either Opikopi or Daisies, mm. especially back then, you know, if you don't play Opikopi or Daisies, are you even part of the music scene? Yeah. And you know you can't play every festival every year. But you've got to have it have played <laughs> You've got to try and be on, so we always used to try and time one daisies, one copy, or whatever, because it was it was just like to feel like we're not just one of those. You know, there's a lot of great festivals, that, but they just have the the bands that you know, the little bit of an older band. They're mm. playing. We always try to keep that going because I think it's just good for your own morale. Yeah, you know, to feel like you're part of it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, and when you are not, it also is. Oh, it's not so great. sad when you find out the lineup's done and you haven't been included, and you try and you just like be cool, Gareth. Be cool, <laughs> but your heart's breaking. I'm so glad we all feel the same way. Actually, I used to play in a rock band back in 2007, and the first festival I ever played was Splashy. I was playing the festival and there was a, everyone kept whispering about Southern Gypsy Queen. You have to go and watch them play. Ooh. And you guys were on that lineup and it was, it was wonderful. So it was the first time I saw you there. Yeah, Pedro Carlo. He actually managed us for a little bit. I think I was just too much of a handful for him in the fact that I just was jolling too hard. But I always think I kept a level of professionalism in because I would like work in the car. But back then I was just playing. I wasn't managing. So I might have been. But he was so good to us in that our first splashy show we ever played. We were on the James Erskine stage or whatever at seven o'clock at night. Nobody knew us. Yeah. Album wasn't even out yet. He really believed in us and gave us some of our best shows as well. Actually, that reminds me. I, one of the, the last splashy I went to, I was watching Sid Kitchen play. I know, like legend. <laughs> legend. Sid at, and Sid at Splashy is also extra special. A thousand percent. And yeah. as I was watching him, somebody in the audience was shouting, Paro, 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 because <sighs> obviously Jack Paro was coming up later. And I felt so angry. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I hate that. Oh, I was so disrespectful. <laughs> anyway, what a legend. Not Sid that Kitchen. I don't love Paro. I'm just like, I, yeah. No, no, totally. But, yeah. but I mean, just to respect the artist that is in front no, of exactly. you. Exactly. Because it's hard enough. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that he was not phased at all, but I was phased on his behalf. Okay. For me, I guess the most important section, why do you keep making music? <laughs> yes. I'm, Matthew von Avant actually said the best thing I've ever heard in my life. And I know you were so Matthew fan. <laughs> he said, I've been trying to give up playing music as long as I've been trying to give up smoking. <laughs> and neither is going really well. Is I also don't know. I have these bursts because now I focus much more on all my other jobs, mm. all my other music industry jobs. And the playing has become a thing. When Paul died, I kind of lost my, the guy I started it with. And we had a vision and we had a plan and we weren't the biggest band in the world, but we felt like we were getting a step further every day. Mm. And we had goals and 
we had to do this before then. And it, it felt like it was a career still. And when he died, it was just like, fuck, I still love playing music, but it's weird. My whole mind shifted. I was like, okay, I'm playing music for me now. Mm. It's not going to be a career for me anymore. I'm going to try play the nicest shows I can and get onto what I can. If I want, if somebody books me for a show, I'll take it. And I still love, I love playing with Tam and mm. Yaku and Gareth Bungie from the Black Hat Bones also plays with us. And it's amazing. And like we played it up, um, up the creek, one of the best shows we've ever had, even including when Paul was there, one of the top five shows. That would have been another top five <laughs> I loved, actually. And it's amazing, but I'm, I just don't have that, a person that pushes me or drives me to do it as a career. So that's not why I do it anymore. I'm not someone that my guitar, oh my God, that poor thing, yeah, there's so much dust in my house, is I have no desire to play it whatsoever. And I'm not like Sting. I wish I was like Sting. who could just write songs about anything. He just creates, he's the best songwriter in the world. My songs come purely from like, my life really has to go to the shitter for me to want to play guitar. So myself's always so fucking oh, sad. I try to write happier songs, and when I do, then they're terrible. You know, I just wish I didn't release the happy ones because they're so shit. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I do is I'm, you know me, I'm a generally happy, upbeat person. Yeah. You also know I've been through a hell of a lot of stuff in the last few years. So I fucking hate whiners. <laughs> My mom and I have always said, Jesus, I can't handle people whining or being sad. And I get, I get like, I, I sound super judgy. I know that sounds horrible. And I do, I care about people, what they have to say, whatever. But it doesn't work for me. So something bad happens. I pick up a guitar. I write a song. It is painful as fuck. Like, it is the hardest thing for me to do. I don't enjoy it at mm. all. I enjoy the end result because it's, I've dealt with that. I yeah. almost feel like I've taken this problem, put it into music, and I go, poof, a burden has been lifted, you know? Totally. There are fun elements. Like I play in Silicon with Andre Krill and Yakumans and Gareth Bungie also in there. And where that is a different kind of band. It's mm. a bluesy jam band. We've had one rehearsal in our life. We'll send something over WhatsApp. Guys, this, we're going to learn it like this. And fuck, it's different every time. That for me is like getting together with three of my best buddies and making music. Yeah. But writing is a painful process for me. But that's why I keep doing it. You want to know why I keep performing? It's because I think I would blow my head off at some point in my life. And I wouldn't be the happy person I am if I didn't deal with issues like that. Gosh, it's to hear you talk like that, it's like a mirror. It's so similar <laughs> to what I do. If only I could learn to communicate with my wives. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that for you. Yo. You should write them all songs mm. while I you're did, still but married. I can't because they make me happy. Actually, sadly, they mostly made me happy. <laughs> I'm going to write a song about your wives. It's like, please do. <laughs> what inspires you? Oh my no no no! We've just answered that. Yeah. I mean, that's that's literally your sadness inspires you. Well, if you look at other things, uh, people inspire me. Other musicians inspire me. I've watched you many times. I'll never forget watching you on the deck at Strab do Be Brave the mm -hmm. first time. Like watching musicians inspires me and that's normally what'll trigger it. If I'm dealing with something, I'll hear somebody else plays something that kind of is poking at me. Like fuck time now, it's time. And then yeah, other musicians inspire me. In business, other people inspire me. 
Yeah. You know, people like Kat Skwinrat, who's one of my business partners. I sit some days working with him. I call him the expert. Yeah. He hates it. I'm like, is there anything you don't know? I'm so inspired by his knowledge and how much he knows about his industry mm. that it pushes me to want to know more about my industry. You know, Teresha is the same. Carl used to be one of those guys, just used to dream up these crazy things. Like, let's get a helicopter to drop off beer. <laughs> people inspire me. I love people. I've got faces tattooed all over my body, more faces than anything else. When I used to sit and do exams in school, I'd finish quickly and then I'd just draw faces. I can't draw for shit, but I used to love drawing faces. I love people's faces. I can stare at people's faces for hours. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. I'd like to see some of your drawings. I'm terrible. I haven't drawn them since then, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> So now, when you sit down to write a song, take me through your process. Do you start with the music? Do you start with the lyrics? How does it work for you? So sometimes I just pick a song up and I will go onto like ultimate guitar tab mm-hmm. and I'll be like, let's just loosen up and I'll just like think of any random song, be like, bring it up, sing a few verses, move on, look, do something else. And then I'll probably go and like make a cup of coffee or whatever and I'll pick up the guitar and I'll just start doodling. Mm. I've very rarely written the lyrics and put music to it. Mm. I over-obsess about the lyrics, sometimes too much, I think. <laughs> but I always do it with a guitar in my hand. Yeah. Writing, going back. So I, I will sort of fiddle, 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 fiddle and, until something bites. Yeah. And then I literally go line for line. I write the song from the beginning to the end and then – with the band days from there, I used to take it to Tammy. So like, if you look at a song like Be The Lion, we've got the acoustic version, which is how it was written. It's just yeah. A minor, F, G, singing. And I said to Tam, I think these lyrics need to be a rock and roll song. Yeah. And she was like, cool. So she took it and then she's like, da, 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 da. She'll write the riff. And then we'd take it to Paul and he'd arrange it. So we were a great team as a songwriter like that. But for me, I, p- I would pick up a guitar and I would, until I, when I got my first line, mm. My entire song comes from the first line. I don't like go, this is the chorus. Because yeah. I believe you can tell what people are like in life the way they listen to music. <laughs> and you can spot people. You've got verse people. I think you're a verse person. I verse am. people care about the story, where it's going to. You get chorus people. They're your more jovial people in life. They like the verse, but they all want to come <laughs> together and have kiss, you know. Then you get the worst kind of musicians and worst kind of people, the guy that plays guitar and fast forwards to the guitar solo. I hate those kind of people. I never get on with those people. And then you've got this very weird group, the very rare people who are the bridge people. I think a bridge is the hardest thing to write in a song because if you notice it's there, it's crap. Yeah. If you don't notice it, someone's done an amazing job. (laughs) (laughs) It's just to tie the song together. Those are generally your oddballs, the, the guys that know how to put a bridge together. And or for me, that's how I listen to the way people write and listen to music. And I think I can really tell what kind of person, to some extent, they are from yeah. how they listen to music. And I'm a verse person, and I start from the, the beginning and I write it till I'm at the end. You are totally a verse person. Yeah, so much. <laughs> I was jamming with Jay Bones the other day, and I'd gone around there and we recorded a new track that I'd written. And he said, that bridge... <laughs> He said, I just think it's an entirely different song. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not very good at writing the bridge, turns out. When I recorded with Theo Krauss, he said to me, Gareth, you write great verses. 
And he said, thank goodness you got Paul. Paul was the <laughs> chorus person. Thank goodness you got Paul because he really knows how to jack the chorus. But nobody in your band knows how to ride a bridge. Oh. And he, he helped there. And then he said, but it's fine. I just recorded with A-King. And he said, Laudy just writes a song full of bridges. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he said, listen to A-King. That's why they've got this unique sound. And it always feels like a lot of bridges adding up to each other. It's completely unique. His songwriting style, you know. Yeah. And that's kind of where I realized the bridge thing. I always used to have the verse and the chorus people. Yeah. And then, then I was like, oh, shit, there's bridge people. <laughs> that's I, I often saw it as like a stepping stone just to move on in the song. The way I see guitar solos a lot of the time is like, oh, I'll just fucking throw it in there, kill time. Like, whatever, we need a break. I need to breathe. <laughs> <laughs> see, I recognize it as the most important part of the song. Yeah. Because it just, it's just like tears things up and blows them into another hemisphere. Yeah, I wish I realized that earlier in my career. <laughs> Maybe we're too old. Yeah, because this song can fall flat very quickly with a yeah. crappy bridge. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a bit about collaborating. All right. Because I find it quite exciting but quite terrifying, the idea of collaborating with songwriting. So you've spoken about it with SGQ. What about with other people? You know, we all grew up together. We were in school together. But Paul and I brothers, Tammy and I dated in high school already we trusted each other so you're trusting someone in that space to be yeah. as vulnerable we all knew exactly how bad we were <laughs> <laughs> that's why we wrote what we thought were good songs together because we knew what we sucked at yeah and so when you collaborate with someone you literally needed i think trust them unless you're these monstrous musicians that just can get together on a musical high and put together this amazing music but i think when you're really writing songs and telling stories and opening up you have to really trust who you're writing with because yeah. you have to not worry that you're going to look like an absolute loser at one point you're like yeah totally i'm gonna fuck out a lot of times before we get it right and i need to be comfortable in the space to do it i'm not going to try and impress you yeah we're going to go through the motions together like i'm writing it on my own you know and i have battled to find other people to do that with mm. albert frost had a good writing relationship with him and still do we haven't done it for a while it was hardcore like the first song we wrote with Albert we went out to his farm in Tilbach and SGQ had come up with a basic like thing we were going with and Al came in and he brought in these amazing ideas but Al and Paul used to butt heads mm. a lot musically and, and well, obviously in a lot of other ways like just, just two very vengeful human beings you know <laughs> And strange enough, I was the diplomat in that relationship. And I remember it getting to a point where it was getting so hectic. And we were writing a song called Chains. And I stood there and I saw them fighting and I just went, listen, I'm taking myself out of this situation right now. And I picked Albert's acoustic up and I went onto the lawn and I wrote a song called Maria, which I actually think is the best song I've ever written. I wrote it in five minutes. As quickly as I wrote it, I put my phone on like this, whop, recorded it, sang it, wrote it. It is like one of those things. And there is a line, there's no bond like a brother when he's the only one in your shoes. And I came back in the room and I said to Al, listen, Al, I love you, you're my hero. You were my hero as a kid growing up. I can't believe you're playing in the band with us now. But um, he's my brother. I'm always going to take his side. Mm. And it kind of just brought a little bit of a calm to the situation. Yeah. And we wrote this fucking amazing song. Oh. But I found Andre Krill now in my later years. Yeah. And him and I are such good friends and are so intimately personal in each other's lives. There's nothing we don't know about each other that he already knows I'm a doer. 
I know he's a dress. So when we play guitar, it's not like I'm finding out something new, you know? Yeah. yeah so it's hard for me. I find it very hard. Yeah. I don't know how you feel. How do you have a hard time writing with other people? Yeah, no, I find it absolutely terrifying. Yeah, yeah. It's I do it very, very rarely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do it very rarely. But Andre has become someone that I've really grown to love writing with. You know who I actually can do it beautifully with is Fred from The Hound. Oh, yeah, he's fantastic. No, he's amazing. Also because he just he doesn't really like write the lyrics. So he yeah. makes these beautiful, beautiful musical pieces. And then he generally gives me free reign. Yeah. No, you guys, you wrote your best stuff, I think, with him. He will be pleased to hear that. In fact, <laughs> he would think nothing differently. <laughs> what do you think, if you had to give a tip for someone to be a better collaborator? Is to... To go into the situation and not be ashamed of messing it up. And you know the worst thing that can happen is you don't write a good song. Totally. And, but you will make a good friend. Or you will definitely see parts of another human and he will see parts of you that you had no idea existed. Oh, that's so And true. I think that's the only tip you can take into that, you know. Unless you like hashing out number one hits and you're like a team of 13 songwriters and you know like SJ Jones does that sort of thing now she's yeah. writing songs for like the biggest stars and she's telling me sometimes there's like 15 people on a songwriting team and it's a it's a formula yeah which is also an art in its own like I respect that totally it's just not the world I live in no no we don't write music yeah. like that. <laughs> we'd be in very different we positions would be if we terrible did. at that <laughs> but I think we would be even poorer <laughs> with eyes full of dreams <laughs> sparkling okay obviously covid i mean it's been wild what are some of the music industry challenges you've identified over this last little time well year? i lost every event i was working on for the year mm -hmm. except for now lucky that my i work with good luck the band on their summer tour called get lucky summer mm -hmm. And that's the only one we're doing, but it has been incredibly hard to organize because of all the COVID rules and all the that. But other than that, I lost my entire income this year. It is pretty tough. I had to open up other revenue streams yeah. and now I'm in the content game, which I roped you into. <laughs> I'm very proud of you yeah. for diversifying like that. And it, it kept a few wolves from the door and is, but very few of this kept maybe one wolf from the door. Yeah. So I need to do more of that stuff. But now it's opening up again. It was super challenging. Yeah. It's been, it still is. I mean, we, you know, all of the music industry is in a hole that's going to take us a while to get ourselves, dig ourselves out of. As a musician, it is a godsend for me. <laughs> <laughs> I had time to play music again. I didn't read, I didn't write much. I must be honest. For Romeo's, we had to do a star fund and there was things you could buy and I wrote personalized songs for people, something I've never done before. Very fun. I roped Andre in to do that with me. Oh, yay. And people would buy a song and they go, hey, I met my wife when I was 19. It's going to be like our 40th wedding anniversary. Will you? I wrote these lyrics. Will you put it to music? Or another group, um, I'm on a WhatsApp group with a bunch of friends and they were like, we want a song for our WhatsApp group. So kept me busy. It taught me a few things musically. No real amazing songs came out of it, obviously, um, but it was great. But what it did do is it got me and Andre to start writing together more. Yeah. So as a musician, COVID was great for me. Andre and I were like two naughty little school kids bunking school and sneaking to each other's house every day. I was just so bored. I'm like, I'm coming over and we <laughs> write music. And 
I think it might have saved me as a musician a bit. I think I was wandering off on a path that I could maybe not come back from, you know. I'd lost touch with that part of myself a bit. There was a lot of bad that happened, but there's always a bit that comes out of stuff. And you know, that was going to be my next question about the silver linings. <laughs> That's so nice. Yeah. The real stuff. Yeah, so I try to make the most out of that situation, you know. And in a way, I think it was worth it. If I'm going to get out of this eventually. We're all going to survive this. Mm. You know, we might have lost this business. But in the end of the day, I've managed to save something that has saved my life time after time after time again. I think it is worth it. Yeah. And what do you predict for the future of live music? Certainly in 2021, where COVID's still kind of around. I think, and I'm already seeing it at shows, is I think live music needed this, especially in South Africa. People have become spoiled for choice. You know, remember the old days like Tans Cafe in Bryanston? Yeah. Um, Southern Gypsy Queen would play, pay 100 rand, 80 to 100 people would come, and they'd have no issue with 100 rand. Yeah. Now you go to the Irish, class puts on amazing show with four bands you'll have shadow club the tasers pollinated all these great bands on one li lineup and they can't charge more than 40 rand oh you know and it grinds me that people just can't see the value yeah. in music and COVID, a great thing it taught me is as a promoter i'm done with a big dick swinging who's bringing the biggest act from overseas who's winning mm. the festival and promoters are always competing i was just like I want to focus on doing really good, real things I love, and I want people to pay for them. Yeah. I want people to value what I'm giving them. And if you pay for it, I can give you nicer stuff. Yeah. I'm not saying people must be ripped off, but, you know, just the little things. If you don't pay a lot, you skimp on sound. It's the fan's job as well to create nicer things for themselves. I think it was great. People lost it for a while. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, I see Tories playing at Smoking Kills this weekend oh but she's she'll play somewhere else in the next week or two yeah now, totally. now people are going oh my god we didn't have this for a couple of months mm. and I kind of like that the numbers are a bit limited well you know for people like me and you 50, 60 people at a show is the norm <laughs> so, <laughs> yes it is <laughs> so it's not like I'm losing hundreds of people at my shows but now they're just paying a little bit more yeah and when you pay more, you appreciate it more. You enjoy the show more. If you pay 40 rand, you're going to stand at the bar and get fucked with your friends. If you pay 100 bucks, you sit and listen to the show. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's perceived value. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good thing from COVID. I think the music industry needed that little kick in the ass to say, listen, fuck you guys. We're not going to give you nice things anymore because you don't appreciate it. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> you know, in Cape Town, obviously, there are venues that charge more than Joburg. Yeah. It got too competitive. It all became a numbers game. Let's see how many people we can get to shows. And, ooh, we're going to have to hustle these bands so hard to get four big names onto a lineup. And then you see 40 minutes of each set where I'm like, rather get one band, maybe a small opening band, because I still love the idea of giving an up-and-comer a chance to play to people yeah. that you think would like their music. I love that. I love it when an opening, people come to me after a show and the headliner, and is they're talking about, they're like, where did you find that kid, you know? Oh. I love that. But if I pay for a show now, I would rather pay more money for less bands to sit and you can go on stage and there's no time limit and you can play your whole set. <sighs> and somebody can go, I just watched Tori. I didn't watch four <laughs> bands bash it out as fucking fast as they can. I watched one band go through the motions. I love that. So that's where my headspace is. If you look at somebody like Lloyd has been there for a while yeah. from Nyrox. 
Okay, Nyrox has a lot of bands on the bills, but Lloyd is always really focused on not rushing the experience. Big time. In the last few months, sitting back and looking at the promoters that I respect, Lloyd is always someone I respected a hell of a lot, but he wasn't the top of my list because I was still thinking like the classic white male promoter, like we need the biggest and the best. And I was looking back and I was like, who actually has puts on the stuff I love the most? Who's promoting shows that I go to, I watch, I feel, I come out there, I feel like I've been washed in a shower. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I've had this great shower. Yeah. I was like, Lloyd. And I was like, little old Lloydy. He's been the game changer all along. He's been pushing from the back. And now I've finally realized how flippin' important his role is in the music industry. And I want to play in that field more, you know. Him and I also have never competed. Yeah. The more he can do... For the scene, the better it helps me and vice versa. So we've always had that. We'll help each other out. Like I've phoned Lloyd and he's phoned me. We'll be like, yes, I just discovered this band. And Lloyd has also introduced me to his, like VCUC, Urban Village, half the band are my favorite bands. And he'll go like, this band really needs to play a big set in the next three months. And I have nothing coming up. I would love to be the guy that breaks them, but it has to happen. Don't you want to do it for them? Yeah, you know, that's... Wow. I love that about Lloyd, yeah. Oh, I've got goosebumps all over. All over. <laughs> really exciting. Is there anything musically in the pipeline? Andrew and I have been writing. I really want to write a Southern Gypsy Queen album, but mm. it's really hard. Just to play a gig is so hard because Tammy's had a kid and now she's got another one on the way. And it's just, it's impossible for the four of us to get together. Yeah. And the secret of Southern Gypsy Queen is it's a little family. We're like a little gang. Like, I remember when I was a kid seeing all songs written by Rage Against the Machine. I was like, that's fucking great. <laughs> Not this one written by Axl Rose and this one written by Slash and this one. I'm like, oh, you're one fucking bad guy. All songs are written by Southern Gypsy Queen now, you know? Yeah. And we write best when we're all in a room together and we write, you know? Mm. Obviously, I come with ideas, and then, but then it's, it's, we, we take it over. So I'm battling to get that one going. Somewhere, again, we will do another album yeah. when it's easier and when... We have the ability to spend a week together because we can write quickly when we're together. We can record even quicker. <laughs> nice. It's not a long process for us. But Andre and I have been writing and I'm not sure where it's going to go or where I'm going to use it, but it's for me with him writing with me. Yeah. So maybe it's time. I tried my hand at a solo album years ago, but it was very unfocused. I had a couple of songs after divorce, <laughs> put them down, released it. I printed a thousand copies and I sold all thousand. So it was one of the most successful things I've ever done in my life <laughs> is because it only cost me 3,000 rand to record and Josias, our mutual friend, paid for it. So I, I actually think it is one of the most, um, if you look at what I spent and what I made, one of the best business decisions I ever made. I recorded it in one day. Yeah. So I'd like to maybe take time, write a proper solo album, you know. Wonderful. I'd you like know. to hear that. So, that's, so it started. I need to figure out how it's going to go and where it's going to go, basically. I, I mean, I can guarantee you it's going to cost you a lot more than 3000 <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you could design a lineup of any combination of artists in the whole world, what would it look like? For myself. The best lineup you could possibly imagine. The best lineup for I could possibly want to go and watch. Mm -hmm. I would love the big banger set, the big, like, Rage Against the Machine and Run the Jewels. <laughs> so I'd, I'd really love that box to be ticked. Gaslight Anthem, Bonnie Vare, mm -hmm. Lauren Hill. 
one of my ultimate artists in the world. I'd like her to have the main slot on the lineup. Wow. I think that for me, if I just have, like, if there was, remember the Coke Fest and stuff when they had these, like, massive lineups? Totally remember. If I had to do a Coke Fest. You know, I, my perfect lineup for every situation. I mean, I, I book festivals for a living. So it's like every situation is different. And I can enjoy booking a small little show as much as I do booking a big show. But if I had to think of booking my favorite big show in the world, I think that would be it. Wow. Those Coke fests. I totally saw Tracy Chapman in the rain Your at one of Tracy those. Tracy would be, yeah. She would actually, could I maybe add Tracy to that? <laughs> and a song that you wish you'd written? 59 Sound by Gaslight Anthem. Definitely. I actually do a version of it. So you'll love this story. Okay. The week my brother died, I went back to Maltino. I was in Oturn on my way back to drop Nickel and the crew off from a show. He'd been sick Everyone thought he was a little bit better, he wasn't. And then as soon as I got here, I didn't even get them to Pretoria to drop nickel somewhere. And he had to get on his own. I turned around and I drove back to the Eastern Cape. And then he died on the way driving them. And a friend of mine, Peter Fisser, who's a candle maker, mm. he introduced me to more music than anybody in the music industry. Yeah. Run the Jewels, Gaslight Anthem. Like I can't even think of how many bands he's introduced me to. And... Gave me this album and he wrote this disc for me. And I, I drove back to Maltino and I spent like 10 days or so with my family. And then I was like, fuck, I have to get back to work. It's got to do something to keep my mind over this. And I was driving back and I was between Krenstadt and whatever, between the one before Krenstadt and Krenstadt. <laughs> and I was listening to the song Gaslight Anthem came on, this 59 sound. Yeah. And it's like... um and I wonder which song they're going to play when you go. I hope it's something quiet, minor, peaceful, and slow. And it's just this like, but it's fast. It's like Tom Petty meets the Killers, you know. Yeah. And the lyrics were just like fucking so hectic. It was just like, well, you, well, we ain't supposed to die on a Saturday night. And it was just the perfect song to hear at that time. And I drove through two taxis shooting at each other. <gasps> so there's this extra element of <laughs> excitement to the song. And I immediately went home and it was one of those times, the first I got home, I was married, I walked straight in, said hello to my wife because she wasn't with me in Maltina. Uh, went straight to the spare bedroom where my guitar was, picked it up, went on to Ultimate Guitar Tab, looked at the songs they were playing, I was like, oh, that's too high for me, changed the chords, put the tabs away, got the lyrics, and I kind of made a completely unique version of that song. One that doesn't sound anything like it, but completely jacked the lyrics because I was like, if there ever was a song written for me at a time that I heard at the right time, it is that one. Yeah. So I have never actually recorded that yet. And it's definitely going to be recorded on whatever I do next. I'm finally yes. ready to put it out. Oh. Yes, you have to do that. <laughs> I must say, I mean, you mentioning Paul's death. For me, it's one of those things that I will always remember exactly where I was. The same way with 9 11. You yeah, remember exactly yeah. where you were when you heard. You were a great friend of the band, or still are, and especially him also. Well, you and I, I think, we're better friends. Yeah. <laughs> but I know he loved you, and I know you loved him, and I still, I think that is why just hearing you sing Be Brave that day on the deck mm. after he'd passed away was still one of the musical things, one of my musical highlights watching a musician, because it just was like, fuck. For a solid year or two after that, every time I played that song, I felt like he was on stage with me. Okay. Wishlist collaboration. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'd really love to write songs with Tammy again. <laughs> 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 I miss that. But 
Oh, I really don't know. I actually, I haven't thought about that for so long. Five years ago, I would have had an answer for you right now. Yeah. No one jumps to mind that I've, I've been dying to to write with. It's weird. It's, that is weird. I'm actually going to think about this and send you a WhatsApp on these yeah. days and go, this, no, this is No, I'd be interested. I mean, I, I asked the question. I have no idea what I'd answer it myself. So I'm going to do the same thing and we can WhatsApp back yeah. and forth about that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, in light of everything that we've spoken about, particularly the industry challenges, what advice would you give someone, a DIY indie artist who is either just beginning or just or doing it? Or it doesn't have to be just beginning. Who's doing it or who wants to keep doing it? So the best advice I can ever give, which you and I were really good at, Paul was good at it, Tammy wasn't so good at it, other band members I've played, some are good at it, some aren't, is certain people in bands have to have great relationships with people in the industry. It's not everybody's personality, but it's harder for some people than it is for others. But make an effort to get to know the people you think can help your career. Yeah. Like befriend them. It's not annoying for me, for young musicians. I actually like talking to young musicians more than old successful ones. <laughs> I like the fire they have in them and how they'll just put themselves out there because they'll do anything to fucking get that, you know, to me to notice them. And I love that. Is that's the best advice I can give you is get to know the people that you think can help your career, figure out what they really want and what they're really looking for. Yeah. If they are the right person for you, Try and give them that. And then the other thing is, I'm starting to notice more and more in this very plastic, artificial world we live in, especially the music industry, mm. is people all have these theories and these formulas and it's going so business. And every great album I look at, look like Bonnie Vey's, that first Forever or whatever that album, it was a massive hit. It sold a hell of a lot of copies. He did not think about what the music industry wanted when he wrote it. Yeah, It's always good to be aware of what the industry is doing. Every great record I listen to, I'm like, those guys did not care about where the industry was at, what it was doing, is try and be authentic. Do things, do your, everyone says that, but yeah, do what make moves you in the song. Yeah. Because in the end of the day, you're going to move other people. If you can't move your fucking self. Totally. You know? And then there's the obvious one. Focus on building a fan base. If you're just starting out. I think it's better advice to get a waitering job, to pay the bills. If I gave myself advice, because we were pretty much always full time, but we never invested money back into the band the way we should have, only in the later years, is take the first couple of years and whatever you make, invest it back into into your business. It's like going to university if you're a doctor, get a waitering job, barman, like do whatever else you have to do because it'll actually fast track the band. In three years, you can be so much further than you would be in 10. Yeah. If you're just trying to survive off of this the whole time. If you want to survive off of music in the long run, you need to put everything into it in the beginning. All yeah. the money needs to go to it. And I think a lot of musicians are seeing it that way these days. You know, mm. If you look at a band like Short Straw, none of them have ever been full time. Yeah. They could have. They could have lived off of the Short Straw. But the reason it escalated so quickly and that is because they just took all the money they've ever made and they put it back in short straw. Yeah. And they got themselves to a place where they could have, if they wanted to, yeah. made a living just out of short straw, you know. I, always, I think they're a great example of that, actually. That is some great, great advice. Thank you. Now, how can people get in touch with you or find out more about what you're up to? Gareth Wilson on Facebook. I think I'm G Hover Lives on Insta. 
Um, those are the only things I'm on. I've yet to start my TikTok. I'm finally good to a point where I'm like, Gareth, it's, I don't want to be mutton dressed as lamb anymore. It's, uh, <laughs> I don't think TikTok is the one for me. I checked it out. I'm also on Tinder, jokes. <laughs> no jokes. <laughs> yeah, no jokes. I don't really need to see myself as being, I, I book shows, I play shows. I don't think I'm the voice or the be all of any scene and I prefer not to be. Yeah. I kind of like my role where I see myself going now is I want to link to certain things I love and I trust and I believe in and push them from behind and the, whatever I'm pushing, keep an eye on that link. <laughs> yeah. Totally. You seem like in a really solid place. I'm in a nice. great place. I'm in, I'm in a great place as a human is that I've just decided I want to be a better human. I want to be better to other people. I've been a shitty person many times in my life. And I woke up one day and I was like, fuck, that's not the way to live your life, you know. And I'm, and I'm still a doer sometimes, I know. <laughs> but I'm really trying not to be. And I'm in a flipping happy space. Oh, yeah. that's wonderful. I'm broke, but I'm happy. <laughs> I finally understand that you can be broke and you can be so happy. <laughs> Isn't that an Alanis Morissette lyric? Is it? I, mean, it I, I might hope be. so. Yeah, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for coming to talk to us. Thank you. It is great to chat. This is the best podcast I've ever been on. Yes. It's cool. If you are an indie artist whose passion for what you do can inspire or fuel others, get in touch. I'd love to chat. You can find me on Instagram at ShotgunTory. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts. Be the lion, a call to arms, a nation. Be the lion, a ray of hope, a brand new Be the lion, a call to arms, a nation. Be the lion. A call to arms, a nation strong. Could it be? Is it mean? Is it really happening? A ray of hope. Test to be our pride, be the liar. Be our protest, be our pride.
Be the light. 